Our special guest today, the greatest goaltender in the history of Canadian soccer, more clean sheets than anybody by a long shot, Craig Forrest, and a heck of an analyst, Joe Tilly's Great Canadian Sports Show, coming up! Our guest today played 15 years in England. He hails from Coquitlam, B.C., most of those in the Premier League with Ipswich Town, Chelsea, West Ham United, and Colchester United. He represented Canada 56 times internationally. He has the most clean sheets in Canadian history. He was named MVP of the 2000 CONCACAF Gold Cup. He is a cancer survivor. He is a longtime soccer analyst at CBC, CTV, and Sportsnet. He was named to the All-Canadian 11 team of all time. He is a member of the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the program. Craig Forrest. Craig, it's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks a lot, Joe. I really appreciate you having me on. It is absolutely my pleasure, and the timing is good, as we talked about briefly before the show started. So I want to start at the beginning of your career. So uh, good Canadian boy. How did you decide on soccer as as a go-to sport? Well, yeah, it's interesting because I was playing the traditional Canadian sports, actually, you know, lacrosse and hockey growing up. And I did a little bit of judo as well, which really helped, I think, from a, you know, physical literacy point of view and learning how to fall, learning how to protect yourself in that sort of situation, which was really helpful. Um, and I was playing lacrosse and it was the under 13 Canadian Championship and was in Brampton, uh, Ontario, and we came back and the goalkeeper was actually an open lacrosse, but his family were taking an RV trip back across Canada. He wasn't going to be there for a soccer tournament that involved with, um, I think it was Labor Day and uh, Labor Day tournament in Coquitlam. And it was my first game as a 12-year-old uh, playing against an American team, and we got beat pretty badly. And I took several lessons in that opening game because I remember the goals actually I conceded in that first game too. So that's sort of how I fell upon it. It was kind of a little bit of luck and they just thought, thought I had the right profile to, to play goalkeeper. And uh, after after the initial stint, I was lucky enough to get some really good coaching and, and fell in love with it. And it was really the, the parts of the game that I wasn't good at that I really wanted to see if I could better myself and uh, never knew where it would take me. But certainly was willing to work very hard at a young age and, and lucky enough to have very good coaching as well with the likes of a goalkeeper coach called uh, Roly Longbottom from Leeds and uh, Alex Zabo, a former Hungarian uh, guy that uh, was in the lower mainland and in, in Vancouver. And uh, I couldn't have asked for better coaches at that time that were very instrumental in my career moving forward. So things really fell, fell in place for you in a, a sort of an unconventional way, a sort of by chance. And, and, you know, you talked about having the judo experience, which can come in very handy for a goalkeeper, although some, some would say it could come in handy for, for any soccer player if they, if they need to fall <laughs> at the right time. So, uh, so you decided on being a goaltender. And uh, how do you get to the Premier League from Coquitlam, B.C.? Well, yeah, I mean, I decided on goalkeeper. I don't think, well, I don't think it's very usual uh, to have somebody that starts as late as 12 uh, in another position. Um, I think in goalkeeper position, I think because of the hand-eye coordination that I, you know, from the sports that we play here, the hockey, lacrosse, basketball, sorts like that, baseball really help with that goalkeeping position. And I think that's why we see the Americans and the Canadians really, you know, producing very good goalkeepers. So I had an opportunity. There was a guy called Phil Trenter in, in Vancouver who was from Ipswich Town, played in the youth team there. He was involved with the Vancouver Firefighters. My dad was a Vancouver fireman for years and years. Uh, so that was a connection there. And he thought that it was worthwhile that uh, I go over for a trial and maybe, just maybe, you you know, if you get lucky and you're good enough, you're going to have to be probably better than the rest because you are Canadian and that's a big strike against you to start with. So that's what I did. I took my opportunity. I went over there at 16, and that's uh, almost late these days. But uh, at that time, it was really, you know, difficult cutting the umbilical cord from your family and your friends. And it was such a different time. We couldn't do things like this on the Internet and Zoom calls and things like that to keep connected. Right. So it was a real disconnect from your family. Uh, and that was really the hardest part. But I really was 
you know, had the desire to try to give it my best shot. And I was fortunate enough to uh, sign with Ipswich Town on youth forms in 1984. Well, I remember when I was a kid playing soccer and all the good soccer, all the best soccer players were kids that had been transplanted here from Europe somewhere. And, uh, you know, they were always the best players. So how, you're going now as a Canadian to the hotbed of soccer. And now you're mm-hmm. becoming, you know, one of the, one of the top goaltenders, if not the top goaltender around. So that's quite a quite a turnaround. We actually have some uh, some uh, highlights of your career. Let's let's roll some of that, Vic, our producer, Vic here. Oh, what a great save! By so I'm going to ask you as, as we as we we're going to watch the VO sound on here. Yeah. Oh, what a great save by Craig Forrest! Shot coming in. Oh, and over the bar again from Forrest. Oh, look at that from Goss. So tell me, are, do you remember some of these saves? You know, I do actually. I remember most of them. Uh, that last one here, that was Andy Cole. He was playing for Bristol City at the time, and he actually went to Manchester United. And a later, later date, uh, well, on one of my poor days, we got absolutely hammered by Manchester United 9-0, and he got five. So on that particular day, I did okay. Roy, Roy Wiggerly there, American guy playing for Coventry City. And this game here was against Germany uh, before the 1994 World Cup, which we did really well. And then obviously this was a, saving a penalty kick off a spree of the Colombian that was playing for Newcastle United at the time, and that was in the Gold Cup final. So yeah, some big players we played against and uh, some big moments we've had uh, internationally and obviously at club level as well. So um, we've got some more highlights. This one's from uh, Ipswich Town. Uh, Ipswich Town. This is from 1990, a game against Newcastle. Uh, sorry, Newcastle United. Wayne Faraday is sent in all alone. And uh, here he goes. Rob by Craig Forrest. Same game. Okay, <laughs> another breakaway. You're probably going to remember this one. Scott uh, Sloan taken down by the keeper, Craig Forrest, coming up right there. Uh, yes, that was a penalty. Now, Quint, Nicky Quinn would score on the penalty. Uh, but they lost it. You guys won the game 2-1. And here, here's what you had to say after that game, after that incident. Let's listen in. We were hoping not to uh, concede so early in the second half or at all, uh, but that's the way it goes. And uh, basically, I think uh, they had a, you know, they had their chances to come back and uh, you know, they had a, a good chance late in the first half. Uh, but overall, I think uh, maybe they, you know, they deserved a draw, but uh, we're, we're quite happy with the result. Now, what about that penalty? Uh, no complaints from you, I think it's fair to say. No, that's right. I came out and he, he rounded me and I, I felt I had to pull him down, sort of the you know, professional thing. Did you worry at one moment there that he, that he might just get the red card out? Uh, no, I didn't. Actually, I was, I was surprised he booked me because <laughs> I didn't even think about it. You know, I thought, oh, you know, there's a foul, there's a penalty. Oh, geez, here we go. And uh, then he came up and I think he almost forgot himself because he came up when I was on the goal line. So uh, are you, you were just being a little facetious there, I'm guessing, right? That you surprised he booked you? Well, you know, the rule changed after that. Uh, I think it was in, I want to say, a year later that the rule changed, that if you did pull somebody down uh, intentionally, certainly, and he was going to score, that would be a red card. But at that point, it, 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 the rule hadn't changed. So if somebody did round you and they were going to put it in the empty net, it was worth pulling them down and having a crack at the penalty. And that's exactly what I did, although the penalty didn't work out quite as well. But, yeah, that, uh, that was something that changed. Yeah, I'm a... a Pretty certain it was 1991 because I pulled a guy down in the Gold Cup and for Honduras and was sent off a year later for it. So that was a bit of a surprise to me. <laughs> right. Come on. I'm, I do this all the time. Come on. <laughs> this is my yeah. thing. <laughs> so uh, we have some more more highs. You weren't exactly a timid player. We got an incident from 1992. You're playing for Ipswich Town again for uh, keep your eye on the collision uh, at the top of the page here. As we roll this. Craig Forrest was sent off when he brought down Adrian Littlejohn in the second minute. Forrest was shown the red card, not for a professional foul, but for serious foul play, which means he's likely to be suspended for three matches after next Saturday's game against Leeds. Well, was that a little bit too aggressive, Craig? It, it was a little bit too aggressive. Uh, I remember that really well, and we we got caught. It was inside four or five minutes of the game, and then we got an early corner, and it broke away. We had a little bit slower defenders at that time, and I thought I could get to it, but that guy was lightning fast and basically helicoptered him. But I remember hearing after the game, the analysts were saying that it was a really harsh call, and 
that that would not be said today. Uh, it was it would be right. Definitely. Yeah, on, it's a red card. That's fine. And, and I did actually get three game suspension for that. Well, you played a fearless game. I mean, was that part of your you know success? The fact that you uh, uh, played that kind of a fearless game. Well, yes, yes. I mean, I don't think you can be in a goalkeeper position at that level and not be fearless. I, you, you, I do wonder sometimes now at my age of thinking back and go, man, you're you know. Young, when you're young, you are just absolutely fearless. It's a nice feeling, but it's also sometimes when you get to this age, you're like, Joe, this is a little bit crazy. It's just you, you're, you're getting yourself in positions. You could get really hurt in, but at that time, I, I did. I really didn't feel as though I'd ever get hurt. And uh, fortunately, there was uh, some injuries and a little illness that kept me out for a while. But overall, uh, the health of my game was pretty pretty good overall, I think. I say you came out of it pretty well, Craig, no doubt about that. But we got another save that we want to show you. This one's uh, when you were with Chelsea, and it's Emil Heskey for Leicester City uh, going it all alone, and here he is. Looks like he's trying to go five hole maybe there. Is that the, was that the key? Yeah, I, I think he, I think Heskey was just in, he was in about two or three mines there, and I stood up as long as I could, uh, made it difficult for him, and he just decided to smash it, you know, 10 yards out. I just stayed up really, really big, and Frank LeBouf then picked up the pieces. A World Cup winner from 1998. Um, yeah, that was a that was a really good time at Chelsea. I was only on there for loan. I was hoping to make a full signing. It didn't quite work out. I ended up moving my, making my way over to other part of London, the East End of London, with West Ham United, which I thoroughly had uh, enjoyed and had five really good years there. It was just so much fun. Characters of the players were just different class and. Um, but that that time at Chelsea was really special. Uh, Rude Hullet, legendary player, was player manager at the time. We had Frank uh, Franco Zola there. We had Bialy there, Labouf, um, and on and Chelskis, uh, Just a number of excellent players at Chelsea at that time too. And you know what? You you spent those years in Europe. What uh, what kind of a player did that make you? Like, what was it like being you know? In, in you know in the Premier League versus playing you know in Canada and and, and you know other other mm -hmm. leagues. Yeah, it's different. You have to become thick-skinned because they're very very aggressive. I mean, just the amount of people that have been texting me about the women being knocked out and how much uh, venom must be thrown around in Canada about that performance. And I was like, no, that, that doesn't really happen here. We, we're quite critical, but not overly critical. And give ourselves a pass more often than not which they do not do there so that was something to get really used to and you sort of had to deal with the highs and lows and be a little bit more even keel uh when i was younger i got really high and i got really low when things were, were weren't going uh, quite as well so over the time you sort of get a little bit more even keel and you don't get too emotional about things because things can change and you're only really good as your last game and, and that's sort of how i went about it and uh it worked quite well, but there, there's the pressures over there are, are great, uh, not only on the field, but off the field. So just trying to live in a, in a town like Ipswich, you're not doing well. You're getting stick when you go to the grocery store or restaurant or with your wife to for having a meal. It's just it's relentless. Uh, so you have to you have to think about things. And sometimes on a Saturday night, you play at three o'clock on an afternoon on a Saturday decide on what you're going to do that night depending on the result <laughs> <laughs> of course yeah you, you don't want to go to a restaurant and you have buns thrown at you so uh so yeah but you know it's like it's like the uh people don't i think i think if people don't, in canada you can't appreciate it but it would be more like uh if you're playing for the maple leafs you know here in toronto or the canucks in vancouver you know or the Oilers mm -hmm. in edmonton like it's a big deal like it's it's the yeah. only game in town pretty much isn't it that's right. It is a big deal. Um, the only difference was I remember seeing in the early 2000s when I retired and came over and it was the end of the season, the Leafs had missed the playoffs and I saw a whole bunch of them out uh, in town and they're having an end of season party and just going around different bars and drinking and stuff like that. And I was surprised that people were going up and asking them for their autographs because they didn't make the playoffs. And if that was us, there's no way we would be able to go out <laughs> anywhere near a town and have a good time uh, on the back, not making the playoffs. So that that's was something I thought. Wow, that it must be pretty nice being a professional athlete in North America when they're asking you for an autograph and you haven't won anything for fifty odd friggin' years. Yeah, we're going away into hiding forever. 
So, yeah. uh, so you got a chance to wear the maple leaf on, on your chest a few times there, leading Canada to the 2000 uh, CONCACAF Gold Cup title. You were named tournament MVP, most valuable goalkeeper, of course. Allowed just three goals and stopped two penalties in five games that Canada played. We have some action from the semifinal, which was huge, against Trinidad and Tobago. Uh, here's a look at, first of all, the only goal of the game. Jim Brennan, terrific cross. Uh, Carlo Corazon heads it in the middle, finished by Mark Watson. A couple of excellent headers in there for, for the Canadian side. And then, of course, mm-hmm. after the game, the celebration was, was was phenomenal at the L.A. Coliseum by that Canadian team. Uh, made you guys, this, one, this win right here made you guys CONCACAF champions and it may be our finest ever men's soccer moment, I would say. Uh, here, and here's what you had to say after the game. A tremendous individual performance, a tremendous team performance. Tell me, at the start of this tournament, did you really believe that this team could go as far as it has? No, I'd be lying if I said we, we, we thought we could. I mean, our goal was really to make it to the next round and face Mexico. And if we could do that, it would give us some experience to, uh, you know, first and foremost, give us that experience to bounce onto the World Cup qualifiers and then go from there. But, uh, you know, we've had some luck. I mean, it went to a coin toss just to face Mexico. We did fairly well in the first two games, extremely well against Mexico, and uh, a touch of luck here today. You've been a part of this program for a number of years. The next game is a special one for you. You're going to crack uh, 52 appearances to set a record for Canadian goalkeepers. Is that, that going to be a special moment? Uh, well, to be honest with you, I, I, I can't believe we're here. And, you know, everybody keeps telling me how many caps I've got and, and what's coming up next. But just for Canada to be in the finals, just uh, I can't believe it. <laughs> a very, very emotional moment for you. Very emotional. It was freaking awesome. I love watching that. A uh, lot of surprises yeah. that year. A lot of surprises. Um, you know, and, and when we went on to win it against Colombia, uh, I remember saying in the dressing room after, I don't, it's going to be a long time before somebody else wins this outside of the U.S. and Mexico. And as it happens, we're 20, 23 years later, we still haven't seen anybody else win the CONCACAF Gold Cup outside of U.S. and Mexico. This uh, one blip uh, for them uh, against, you know, us, Canada. So it was really a miracle. And under the circumstances of who was in charge of FIFA and CONCACAF at the time, I mean, people are well aware of the corruption of FIFA, uh, Jack Warner, and guys who were in charge of CONCACAF at that time. We weren't just playing against our teams that we're facing. Mm. We're playing against the Federation that didn't want us to go anywhere. And, you know, in some respects, you look at, what we bring to the table as far as support from supporters and crowds, we don't bring an awful lot, you know, um, the, the gold cup final lost, you know, CONCACAF probably $5 million in the, in the tournament overall. So they said there were 7,000 at the final. Um, every other final has been 60 to 80,000 people, but, uh, we kind of ruined it. And against Columbia, obviously being a country outside of our confederation and being an invitational team, we finally felt in the final that we had a level playing field and that's all we ever wanted uh, because we didn't think that at that stage, after beating Trinidad and Tobago, the, the president of CONCACAF, Jack Warner's team, we felt that they didn't want uh, Columbia. So uh, the, the team from outside the Confederation to win it. So we felt that we had that level playing field and we probably played our most relaxed, best football of the tournament in the final because the semifinal, we were tense. Uh, the occasion got to us. Um, Mark Washington with a very important goal. He didn't score many goals. Carlo Corzine didn't score many goals, but he did in that tournament. He was golden boot winner too. So you need to find the back of the net. You have to be a little bit lucky. We rode our luck, uh, but the stars aligned in 2000. It was a magnificent thing. And uh, yeah, to win something. I mean, for our national team, you can win the World Cup and the Gold Cup is second. It's like our Euros right. um, Confederation winner. So it's the second best thing we can do. And uh, to win a trophy for Canada is still to this day. I just uh, think about it very often. Well, we do have a little bit of video from that from that uh, championship victory. Uh, the final, still the greatest achievement in Canadian men's soccer history, no doubt about that. And uh, what was it like being named top keeper of the Gold Cup and MVP? Was that the career highlight? Well, it was great. Uh, I mean, it was a nice surprise. I mean, goalkeepers generally don't, win MVPs of tournaments uh, because it's usually going to be a goal scorer that gets it, and rightly so. It's the hardest thing in the business to do is put the ball on the net. Uh, we saw that with our Canadian women's team just having struggles in front of net. So uh, for goalkeepers to get the MVP of a tournament, yeah, very, very rare. It's happened a couple times in the Gold Cup, and, you know, 
internationally very, very rarely. So uh, it's, yeah, it feels good to be one of very few goalkeepers to win an MVP at an international tournament. Well, you did definitely stand out. You definitely stood out. Now, after about a year after that incredible high, uh, you found out you had cancer. Uh, what was it like to get that diagnosis? Uh, well, it was scary, of course. Uh, I mean, everybody has been touched by cancer. If it's not themselves, it's their friends or families. And um, nobody really escapes it one way or the other. Um, it was scary. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. I don't I had heard of testicular cancer because I've had a, had a player, uh, Jason Cundy, uh, at Ipswich Town, who had it a few years before I did. Um, and then there was other players after me. John Hartson, I played with at West Ham United. He got it. Uh, he, he found it late, uh, but he still managed to get through it. It was in his lungs and actually went into his brain, a little bit like Lance Armstrong. Um, Baghdadis, we had a, a young lad at West Ham, actually, at 20, passed away after I left. Um, yeah, so there's a high rate of football players seem to get it. Alan Stubbs, another player at Everton, I remember, had testicular cancer. So it was just something that sort of came out of nowhere. And I remember feeling the lump uh, and I got to my physio, made a call right away to the club. It was a Friday or Thursday, perhaps. We had a game on the weekend. He said, we'll get a scan on Monday and we'll see, check it out. So that's exactly what happened and had a scan on Monday. And it was literally my last training session that I ever played. So very fortunate you found it early, uh, but it still resulted in your career coming to an end. Mm -hmm. It did. Uh, I mean, it was sort of a forced retirement. Uh, I had a little bit of problems with the chemotherapy. I didn't feel great after it. Um, but, uh, you know, being in a position that I was and at my age of 35, trying to, you know, uh, survive at West Ham United, who had offered me a year contract. I, I hadn't signed. I was hoping for a two-year contract at 35, of course, and I thought we were going to get it. My agent said, we'd probably get it. But under the circumstances, I went back and my agent said, listen, we'll take the one-year contract uh, that's on offer and uh, he can prove his fitness in the coming year. And they said the contract has been pulled off the table. So that was really disappointing as well. Mm -hmm. And from that point on, uh, I looked around a little bit, but I was, I was sort of, I didn't want to move down divisions and I, I felt that I, I could still play at the top level, but it, uh, it wasn't to be. So I thought it was a good time to move. sort of had the opportunity to move into television in Canada from there. So that was a, a really nice uh, opportunity for me after playing. Cause it's, it's difficult for guys after they retire. It really is. And I think that that was a, you know, keeping the umbilical cord connected to the game and talking to players and have a reason to, to talk about the game and things like that was really helpful for me um, and sort of eased your way some from playing into, into retirements and doing something else, but still being connected to the game was really, really good. Well, we, uh, you were inducted into the Canadian sports hall of fame in 2015 and, uh, what a class that was, a spectacular class. Uh, uh, let's just listen to it, the interview you did at the time of your induction. If you can roll that, Vic. Represent Canada. I love playing for Canada. I love this country. Uh, I remember where I came from. And uh, when we had the chance to do something special in 2000 by winning the Gold Cup, Canada's first ever international tournament, uh, that was really probably the moment that put me over the edge for, for this uh, type of thing. So at the time you're inducted in the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, uh, what what was that? What was that like for you? Oh, that was amazing! Um, really, really special moment. I think there's only about six or seven uh, soccer players in the in the Sports Hall of Fame, women or men. So, and I think a few of those are also builders. So it's a very rare thing for a soccer player. I hope to see more of them. We've got several players that I think will be heading that way in the future. Uh, but it was special for sure. And, you know, going in with the likes of Paul Coffey as well, who I supported as a, as a young lad. I was in Vancouver, but watching him play for the Oilers for all those years. And Wayne Gretzky. I remember, actually, I'll tell you a little story, but where's me, Wayne Gretzky and Paul Coffey were standing there uh, at an event at uh, Canadian Tire, who was one of the major sponsors for the Canada Sports Hall of Fame. And at that time, uh, Connor McDavid was, you know, Everybody knew who he was, but how good was he? And Wayne Gretzky asked Paul Coffey, said, you know, how good do you think Connor McDavid is? And Coffey said, he's the closest thing I've ever seen to you, kid. And I thought, wow, okay. That's, that's 
some indictment. It was amazing. And to see where he's gone from there uh, is is quite clearly uh, the right statement from Coffee. So that was one of the things I really remember about the Hall of Fame thing and seeing what's happened since. But yeah, some great athletes and to be part of that family of, the, of uh, great Canadian athletes is just really, and builders is very special. Yeah, how many people can say that? You know, I was at an event standing there talking to Paul Coffey and Wayne Gretzky. We we're t- <laughs> talking about Connor McDavid. You know, that's a pretty, yeah. have a pretty good, pretty, pretty cool, pretty cool life you've had. So you mentioned you got into broadcasting and working with our old pal Jerry Dobson. Uh, and you mentioned you've made that transition. You know, sticking, getting a chance to stick around uh, soccer and to stick around the game and, and talk about the game. And uh, was it an easy transition for you to make? Well, it, it was somewhat only because I'd had the experience and wasn't sure whether I'd like it or whether I'd be decent at it. Uh, was doing some TV for the 1998 World Cup in France. So that was my first little dabble into it. And I really enjoyed it. Working with Vic Router, you know, being a, such a professional and so being so well prepared for events, I learned so much off him. Um, and then 2000 Euros and then the 2002 uh, World Cup as well, and then that's really when I made my move over to to Sportsnet. But those were both at TSN at that time, and and so I had a bit of a feel for it. I really was looking forward to getting involved. And Scott Moore at Sportsnet brought me on to the really coverage with Jerry, another incredible professional and terrific guy that I learned so much from, and became you know really incredibly close friends with Jerry, and uh, spent uh, 18 years with him. Yeah, that's pretty good. Uh, pretty good run with somebody. Eighteen years. I, I I worked with Jerry for quite a long time too. We used to do a show called Sports Beat today on Sunday nights, that's which was a lot, a lot of fun. Jerry's Jerry's a good man. Uh, so, we're, let's talk about your. You know, you you spent a long time as an analyst. You know, it's funny, but it seems like goaltenders tend to make good analysts. You got in hockey, you got you know Glenn Healy and Kelly Rudy, and you got yourself. Is it because you're sort of back in the net watching the game unfold? Does that does that help you, uh, you know, become a good analyst? I think so. I think it certainly helps. Yeah, because uh, you do analyze the game all the time. You're looking at it. You have a really good picture where the players are running around. They don't really sort of have the same sort of look. Uh, over the pitch that you do as a goalkeeper. So you, you tend to, yeah, analyze things and uh, and you do a lot of talking on the field. So talking off the field because yeah. it's a little easier. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I thought catchers too, right? Buck Martinez, Joe Siddle, like these, uh, you know, they're, they're watching the game unfold too and they're talking all the time. So yeah, there you go. <laughs> so uh, uh, let's uh, talk about, uh, some of the uh, most recent analysis, I guess. Uh, the men's team qualified for the World Cup for the first time in 36 years. Now, were you okay with that? Was that enough for you, or do you think that it was it was a disappointment for them to not make it past the first round? You know, it was a bit bittersweet. I thought um, the way they qualified was incredible. Winning, you know, the the, the Concacaf area to qualify was you know exceptional, well deserved. They picked up four points off Mexico, four points off the United States. So going into the World Cup, they had high hopes. We have a very good manager, very good man manager or person manager, I should say, really with uh, John Herdman, who obviously mm-hmm. we know what he's done with the women's program as well as the men's program. Um, I haven't seen anybody, you know, with the attention to detail that John Herdman has. He's very intense. I think some of the coaches that work with them find them really intense too. And it's a full-time job, even though they, they can go months without playing. Um, so saying that, going into the World Cup, fairly high hopes, but you're up against Belgium, who at that time were ranked number one in the world. And the performance mm. they put against them was really good. Um, but again, in tournament football, it's about big moments. And Alfonso Davies takes a penalty, is saved by Courtois, the goalkeeper for Belgium, a big monster of a goalkeeper. Um, they would have taken the lead, but they end up, not getting the result that they wanted. Um, and that's sort of what happened during the tournament. They they played really well, um, but didn't get the results. So there's that bittersweet feeling where you just felt that there's something else. They were, they were so close to, you know, qualifying for the knockout stage. And from there, who knows what could happen? I mean, look what happened with Croatia and Morocco. They were yes. in the group and right to the semifinals. So showed you how strong the actual group was and the competition in it when Belgium gets, you know, hoofed out. So... Yeah, I was I was proud of the team, proud of the performance overall, but disappointed because I felt that they they could have actually got out of the group. 
Well, you know, and, and it turned out to be a really tough group, didn't it? I mean, when they made the draw, a lot of people are saying, well, Belgium's tough, but I think Morocco and, you know, Croatia might, you know, be teams that Canada can, can beat, you know, and it Toronto almost turned out the other way around. Like they almost mm-hmm. beat Belgium and, 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 uh, and Croatia turned out to be the powerhouse. And, uh, well, yeah, so yeah, they're yeah, you just good. To Croatia is Croatia's an incredible team and talk about mental strength and things like that, that just go at a different level. Croatia, a small country that punch way above their weight, produce really mm. good players. Modric, of course, in the latter day of his career, still playing top level uh, at the World Cup and still playing well now too. So just uh, that quality and that uh, experience that I think that they had, Croatia, just put them, you know, gave them that little bit of extra edge on us. Yeah, it was a fun tournament, really was. So, so let's turn our attention to the women for a moment. Uh, I mean, they shocked a lot of people when they won that Olympic gold medal uh, in Japan. Now, were you stunned at the time, and 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 how good was that for soccer at the time? Well, it was great, uh, of course. Uh, you know, following that that up, you know, with two bronze medals prior, uh, you know, two thousand twelve, going back to London, it sort of started. So the Olympics has sort of been our our bread and butter for a women's team. For the men, it's the under twenty three tournament, and that, that's going to sooner rather than later to the women's program too it'll be they'll make it an underage tournament because they don't want two world champions they don't want a situation where they're mm-hmm. saying hey canada won the olympics usa won the world cup it's like no we just want that's why they do it to the men as well because it's beyond mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. Now, lionel messi has won the olympic games and nobody until the world cup or two until he won uh the um, south american championship uh, copa america he wasn't seen to win an international tournament so so he's shows you where they put the Olympics in the men's game. But the women's game is still full. They're developing the game still. There's only 12 teams play in the, the, the Olympics, which makes it a little bit uh, less competition, if you like, because the World Cup's 32 teams. There's more European teams. They're getting stronger. Uh, but saying that, uh, it was a situation where we just, the stars aligned to, we, we relied on very good defense uh, that we always usually have, except for this World Cup uh, lately. Um, and they just put it all together and went on penalties. And yeah, it was a special moment, special moment for them. And uh, it was a, definitely an underdog story as well, even though that I thought they'd be in the top five at that tournament. Yeah, that was a beautiful event. It really was. It was, it was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. But now you've got the World Cup this year. And uh, disappointing for sure. I mean, they're the first of all, they're the, they're the first Olympic champions to not make it out of the, out of the first round. And so that's pretty disappointing. You know, that that 4 nothing loss, I know there was injuries and illness, but that 4 nothing loss to the Matildas, how do you explain that? Uh, it's a difficult one to explain because we don't normally see our women, you know, fall like that, especially defensively. Um, Australia playing at home, I think the occasion was massive. We're often playing away from home. Even sometimes when we're playing at home, we get outnumbered by away supporters. And I think that that atmosphere really got to them. They conceded too early and that put them right behind the eight ball and they just really couldn't get themselves going. Obviously, question marks about the personnel. I think there was a, some tug of war emotionally with, with whether or not they Christine Sinclair and Bev decided that she would start. Although if it was me, I would have put her on the bench, brought her on second half like they did against the Irish. But... I guess, you know, when you're looking for goals, uh, we know who can score, and it's Christine Sinclair, if she can get the opportunity. And I think that's what Bev was hoping, that she could find a space, find an opening, and she could find the back of the net. She really didn't get into the game, and neither did the rest of the team. So she became a little bit irrelevant up front, and that's why the change was made at halftime. I don't think it was just Christine uh, Sinclair. It was obviously the full team, but it's not what we are normal uh, normally see from our, our national women's team. Uh, they're usually strong mentally, and they just seem to – not have that, but we just hope that that's a bit of a blip. But what does worry me, Joe, is the fact that the rest of the world is really catching up. The likes of Nigeria, we've seen Philippines perform well. Colombia have, you know, Casado, this young Linda Casado girl, she's absolutely brilliant, like technically, um, you know, so these teams are catching us up and that's because of the opportunities and the growth of the women's game, which is superb, but it also is going to make life more difficult for us because for years we benefited from the fact that we had a head start on uh, the women's development and the fact that we gave opportunities for uh, organized women's sports. And uh, now that's changing around the world, which is great, but it's becoming more competitive and it's going to get more difficult. 
looking like teams like England and the league that they have there. The WSL is just spectacular, and that's growing all the time um, with the big brands in Manchester United, Man City, Chelsea, West Ham. These are all over all over the, these teams. So that's going to continue to grow. And uh, what has really surprised me, I think, out of this World Cup uh, and does every four years is just the actual bump in the quality, the technical ability, tactical ability of these teams that is just taken a different level every single four years. And we just don't seem to be staying up with pace. And a lot of that has to do with not having a domestic league in Canada. Right. So, yeah, we're going to get to that. So, yeah, I, I watched some of the highlights of the Sato play. Um, oh, my God, that goal she scored, incredible. The Nigerian keeper, I thought, has been, was sensational, particularly yes. against Canada. Uh, and yes. so, you know, this is not the way we wanted to see her go out, but this is, uh, you know, Christine Sinclair's swan song and Sophie Sch Schmidt, of course, and I think she's gone too. But uh, Sinclair, mm -hmm. 326 international appearances, 190 career goals, former international player of the year, unbelievable player. Uh, th but yeah. here's what the 40-year-old legend said after that loss to, uh, to Australia. She says, Soccer Canada could use an overhaul. Let's listen. I think what you're seeing in women's football is teams are catching up. Um, I think this, for me, is a, a wake-up call for back home, uh, a wake-up call to our federation and the lack of a professional league, uh, a lack of resources for the national teams, a lack of resources for the youth national teams. That, uh, yeah, similar on to as on the men's side. I mean, if if the resources aren't there, we're going to fall behind, and I think you're. If this isn't a warning sign, I don't know what is. So there we go, the warning shot. And you touched on all of those things, Craig. Uh, you know, and, and so, you know, we don't have a domestic league. The junior program needs to work, and and and, uh, and and on it goes. And then, of course, the problems with uh, Soccer Canada getting it together, having a fight with the with the national teams at the worst possible time. Like, if you're you're, you're say you're running the, the works, what what are, what are you going to do to fix all this? It's a difficult one, Joe. I mean, the, the money is never going to be there at the level that we see south of the border. The United States have a budget that's millions and millions of dollars more than ours. Um, we can only wish to get there. We're not a what you call a soccer football country. Uh, we're nowhere near that. Uh, but when you see these other countries, they're playing in Australia and they have thousands of supporters that will travel. Uh, we have friends and family to go and we have a decent mm -hmm. support, but it's not like, it's not like other places. So there's no pot of gold in Canada and this is a problem. So if you have an operational budget of around $25 million, that $25 million, uh, when you're looking at some of the Canadian tournaments that go on, it might cost a couple million for that The Canadian championship, the youth level, you've got the international teams that want to prepare properly. And that's going to take a lot of money. They say that it's about seven to eight hundred thousand dollars for a you know a two game window in, in FIFA. So if you're over for days or something like that, it's going to cost like seven to eight hundred dollars. When you look at the fees that the players are being paid, that's that that disappears really really quickly. And, and when you're doing looking at our under seventeen men's team or the women's teams that can't prepare properly going into tournaments, that puts you right behind it as well. And one of the major problems. For the men is that when you're trying to wine and dine these younger players that have options to play for other countries as well as Canada, uh, we see this in the States. They have the budget to bring them in because it doesn't tie you to those nations. It used to, but it doesn't anymore until you play a competitive game. So they can come over, play for the U.S., they can, Brazil, they can play for Canada, but until you play a competitive, you're not tied to that country. So the U.S. bring all these players in, U17, U16, U18s, U20s, and then when they do have to make that decision to play for their national, a national team, because they've spent so much time with the U.S. team, say, they're friends with the players that they've actually grown up with over the last five years. And when you're going to choose, of course, you're going to choose the U.S. So we have we don't have that opportunity. Our U-17 men's team are going to go into that World Cup without, you know, basically a preparation tournament or preparation games. And there's no chance for any of that sort of whining and dining. That's so important when you're looking at top players and they have options to play for other countries. And that's really where uh, money will be, uh, you know, difficult to find. And we haven't been able to find it. And like I said, I don't think there's a pot of gold. We can do better, but it's always going to be somewhat, uh, you know, hamstrung, I think, uh, as far as, you know, what we have as far as 
money in the pocket. Well, it's interesting because, you know, uh, a recent study suggests that soccer is the most popular sport among Canadian kids now. It has become the most yeah. popular sport among Canadian kids. So you've got Canadian kids playing soccer. You've got, you know, be, uh, so our youth is becoming more the most popular game around. And so why is there not money being fed into that? You know, why is there not a women's league? Why is there not, uh, you know, money being fed into that? Like, I mean, I can't understand why, you know, a sponsor well, would be looking at that. We say we have a roughly, say, a million kids playing in Canada. Their fees, uh, a certain amount, a dollar figure that actually goes into the CSA. I think it's like, I want to say six or seven, maybe eight dollars. I don't know if it's as high as that, but something like that. So that's basically the biggest income that the, our association have. So what's the problem with that? The problem is pay to play. Uh, when you're looking at development in other countries, just England, for instance, any of the European countries, they're not paying to play. They're paying, they're, they're, they're going to the clubs because the clubs are using them as, you know, they're collateral, they're, they're worth money, they're, they can actually make some money from that, they're worth something. So they come into the club, uh, but they're not paying to go to Man City, Manchester United, Chelsea. But over here, you pay to play. And that's also making it difficult for families that can't afford to put their kids into organized sports. So who are we missing out on? A lot of people. We see that in the States as well. The academies are really expensive. It's going to cost you ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a year, and upwards to eighty thousand if you're at IMG. Who can afford that? That's in the states. That's a problem as well. That's why I think we've seen, you know, prior to last year, I believe there was less than a half a do or a dozen uh, women of color that played for the United States. That's because the benefits and the uh, of the you know white affluent families being able to send their kids to the very best schools. So the states have that problem as well. Um, but uh, we do have it up here as well. You know, paying to play is uh, is not always the best way to get the best players and the ones that are the hungriest to try to, you know, benefit themselves, their families, their country, and everything about it. So that is a problem we have as well. So is there a way to get, uh, I don't know, start club teams? Is there a way to start clubs, uh, you know, bringing players in? Is that is that maybe a place to start with? Uh like the grassroots. Well, that's right. The Canadian Premier League uh, for the men is going. Uh, it's been going for a few years. It's been a bit of a, a struggle for them, but they, they, they seem to be doing okay. Some of the clubs are very strong. The women, uh, the size of our country is a massive problem for us as well, from a domestic point of view. Uh, Project 8, uh, Diana Matheson's uh, heading that up to try to hmm. get a, eight teams ready for, I think, 2025 season. Um, let's hope that that can work. That's going to be an opportunity for women. And we're, I think we're the only team in certainly in the top 10 in the world that don't have a domestic league, but the size of the country makes it difficult because the costs of travel mm. are just massive. Right. And I, I don't know how they're going to have to get some help and hopefully uh, some of the sponsors will be able to subsidize that. Maybe Air Canada or WestJet or somebody can do something to, to help the league uh, get off off the ground because they really need it. They deserve it. I know these women have worked so hard for the national team and they love it, but they, they like to see the game move forward as slowly, but surely it is, but it's kind of baby steps is, is uh, not really the, the pace that we want to see it. Right. Yeah. I think, well, obviously you have to keep it regionally, you know, keep it regional at a certain level and then, you know, and then have a playoff format where they do, you know, meet each other down the road because uh, like, as you mentioned, travel would be so prohibitive, you know, you know, when you when you're paying that kind of money for, you know, unless unless Air Canada or WestJet come on board and spend a whole bunch of money promoting soccer because that's the fastest growing uh, young sport in, in Canada. So, mm -hmm. you know, just in putting it out there. Anyway, <laughs> Craig, before we go, I want to ask you, yeah, what's what's the best advice you've ever received? The best advice I've ever received. Um, from a goalkeeper point of view, the position point of view, I would say. Uh, you have to let things happen. You can't make things happen. It's different than out players. It's different than forwards. They're the ones that actually have to make things happen. You have to let the game come to you a little bit. You can't force it. And I did a little bit when I was younger. I was trying to do too much and get involved in the game. So that was probably the best um, um, other advice I would get to you. So off the top of my head, I would have to put some thought into that. But I've had a lot of good advice over the years. Uh, one of them was actually there was a player called Steve McCall a legend for at Ipswich Town. He was coming to the end of his career when I was 16, and he said that, you know, enjoy it, 
Uh, if you managed to sit underneath the seat that I was sitting at that time, it was a guy called Paul Cooper, who was a, just another legend goalkeeper for Ipswich Town. He says, if you end up sitting there one day, you, you've done okay. But just remember when you're done, the phone stops ringing and people don't want your autograph anymore. <laughs> it's like, yeah, that is, that is true. And so from that moment, I was like, you know, just treat everybody with respect because you just don't know who you're going to see on the way up and then also on the way down. And uh, I feel pretty confident that all those people I saw on the way up that I can still uh, see on the way down and hold my head high and, you know, that I treated people with respect. Awesome. Yeah. Um, Pat Mars, my old boss, uh, once said that to me too. He said, Swiss, you see the same people on the way up as you see on the way down. Just remember that. You know, and <laughs> it's true. Yeah, it's, a, it, it's it's a great message, and also uh, you know, like letting letting the game come to you as opposed to trying to make things happen all the time. That's a good that's a good lesson for life too. I think in general, yeah, mm-hmm. that's good. That's true. It is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, Craig, I want to thank you for taking the time to join us. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on, Joe. It's been absolutely brilliant and funny being on a show with you, man. It's like. Uh, you're a legend, and Jerry's talked a lot about you over the years, too, and, and Marsden and all these guys. Amazing, amazing story. Yeah, we had some fun back today. Thank you so much, Craig. More Thanks sports for having when we me. come back. And now my Woodbine Swiss pick of the week. Last week, I took the number seven horse, Classy Royale, in the second race at Woodbine, Mohawk Park, Thursday night. The $102,000 opening leg of the Gold Series for two-year-old Philly Trotters. And she didn't disappoint, charging to the front after the first quarter, never looking back. She did take a little peek. Jody Jamison drove for co-owner Carl Jamison. The time was 156-1. The two-horse, no one, got it for second, messing up my exactor. Here are the winning connections. She's happier when she's going full out, and I didn't want to fight with her. And you know, it turned out to be I think 28 and three, right, the third quarter. And, and I, I think she got home in 28 and three too. But um, just like she was just solid today, like she just she just felt good. So I wasn't going to bother fighting her and try to tra- change what she wanted to do. What's her training regimen like week to week in between these golds? Well, last week uh, since she raced, we only trained her once. Brought her down here and trained her a good mile, but that's the only time she was trained one trip. This week, I'm looking at the feature race on Thursday's card at Woodbine, the Flats, the fifth. I like the number six horse, Victoria's Chief, who has been in the money three of four races this year. Sahin Savachi rides, Mark Cassie, the trader. Let's go with the 268 Exactor and Triactor. Now, go to woodbine.com for the latest racing info. You can also get the latest from Woodbine Thoroughbred and Woodbine Standardbred on Instagram and Twitter. Go to hpibet.com and darkhorsebets.com for your wagering options. Get ready for an exhilarating ride as Canada's oldest and most prestigious thoroughbred race enters a new era. Woodbine Entertainment proudly presents the King's Plate, North America's longest continuously run stakes race. Join us on Sunday, August 20th, for the 164th edition of this prestigious $1 million race. It's an event like no other, a symbol of true excellence in Canadian sports. You too can rule the day of fashion, food, and world-class horse racing at the King's Plate, August 20th. Tickets at kingsplate.com. Addiction Rehab Toronto. Toronto's number one alcohol and drug treatment center, saving lives, reuniting families. The only treatment center in the province to offer medical detox, treatment, sober living, and lifetime aftercare all in one place. Our unique and specialized programs are designed to equip our clients with the tools to successfully lead a life of dignity, respect, and purpose. Let us help save your life or your loved one's life Call today for more information or to facilitate an intervention. 1-855-787-2424 or visit addictionrehabtoronto.ca. Attention security seekers. Ready to take control? Introducing Corporate Protection and Investigative Services, your ultimate solution. Retailers tired of losing profits to theft? 
Our retail loss prevention experts have you covered. Mobile patrol, close body protection, insured door persons, we've got your security needs covered from all angles. Background investigations and civil recovery programs, trust us for thorough solutions. Licensed by the Ministry of Solicitor General, fully insured and bonded. Visit www.corporateprotection.ca or call 1-800-827-1692 for top-notch security and private investigation services. And we want to thank all the folks who make this show possible. These are friends, trusted business associates, and all-around great folks. We highly recommend them all. Thank you for your support of Canadian and local sports. A reminder that the show is available on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Radio Public, Google Podcasts, and Pocket Casts, as well as the Spanglish Network and Zingo TV and Buzz TV Live. Also, check out the show on YouTube. All of our past great shows and clips are on there, some shorts. Oh, it's got a lot of fun there, folks. Like and subscribe. It's absolutely free. Thanks once again to Craig Forrest for being on the show. Thank you for watching. We'll see you next time. Brian Gribben Insurance Planning, helping you solidify your financial future. At BGIP, what we do that's unique in the marketplace is we show people how to spend and enjoy their money in their early years of retirement without the fear of running out. Also, we're able to do this without you having to change financial advisors. Please look us up at bgip.ca today. Let's book a 30-minute phone call to see how we can bring value to you and your family and your planning. Call Brian today for all your retirement needs. We did. 905-686-5678. Guests on Joe Tilly Sports receive a gift certificate from Classica Imports. Top of the line, imported men's clothing. Check out the Classica Essential Collection now. Go to shopclassica.com. God the shot of the week is brought to you by Sleepy Hollow Country Club. 60 years of tradition, providing a challenging and enjoyable golf experience just minutes from Toronto. Joe Tilly here. My wife Penny Claire and I recently took an amazing trip to Egypt and Jordan with Trip Oppo. And here are our top 10 must-dos. Another must-do experience is a luxurious cruise down the Nile River. The ship was elegantly furnished with premium facilities, including a spacious lounge and a swimming pool. The cabins were comfortable, well-appointed, offering panoramic views of the Nile River and the surrounding landscape. I would highly recommend that you book your next trip through Tripopo. Call them today. Do you want to buy or sell a home? Could 31 years of real estate experience help you? Why not speak to an amazing team that loves to overpromise and overdeliver? Aldo has a tremendous team of experts on staff. They are committed to making your next real estate transaction smooth and comfortable. Call 416-GET-ALDO or visit getaldo.com.